Hi, this is Toco US brand manager, Ian Harvey. I'm here with Liz Guinea. Liz has eight individual World Cup starts and one World Cup relay start. Her best World Cup finishes were 13th in the skiathlon and 24th in the classic sprint in 2017 in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Liz also finished second in a North American Championship Classic Sprint in 2016. She has been on the podium seven times in Super Tours, including one win in a 10K Classic in West Yellowstone. Liz finished third in the U.S. National Championship Classic Sprint in 2015 and has 10 top 10 U.S. Nationals finishes. Liz retired in the spring of 2020. She currently lives in Park City, Utah, where she coaches or teaches for three different ski programs and is teaching is taking online college classes. So thanks a lot for being with me today. I'm sure this is going to be a fun and interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Super excited. Cool. Well, let's start out, if you wouldn't mind telling us where you grew up and how you started ski racing, skiing and ski racing. Sure. So I'm actually um, born and raised in Park City, Utah. And when I was about... I don't even remember, probably about one or two, uh, my parents got me out on Nordic skis. So I actually started skiing at White Pine Touring right in town. And my brother and I would just go out on our skis. And the big attraction was to take Brett out and feed the ducks at the pond. That was kind of our main motivation um, for getting out on our Nordic skis. And then I also picked up Alpine skiing as well. Did you say to take Brett out? Uh, to take bread, like a loaf of oh, bread. bread. Bread out and feed the ducks. Got it. Okay. I thought maybe you had a dog named Brett. Okay. So taking bread out and feeding the ducks. That was your primary motivation when you were a, a tyke skiing around. Yeah, pretty much. And then um, I did a lot of sports when I was younger. So I kind of delved in gymnastics and dance, um, Nordic skiing. I did a little bit of freestyle skiing. But Nordic skiing was kind of always the one that stuck that I really liked a lot. And I started to get um, a little more competitive in it. I think I started racing when I was in about fourth or fifth grade. And then um, by the time I was like a J2, which that's old terminology, it's now <laughs> U16. Um, that was when I, I started to get more competitive and really feel like this was the sport that I wanted to do. Um, but I also was on the running team as well. So throughout high school, I ran cross country. So how was that? I know the Park City cross country running team was quite successful, but I think there were also a lot of overuse injuries. Did you ever have some issues with overuse injuries running cross country or track in high school? Um, I actually did not. And I think I got pretty lucky. I think part of it had to do with the fact that I was cross training a lot for Nordic skiing. So I never did um, five or six days of running in a row. I was always adding in some roller skiing um, and doing like bounding. So more low impact stuff. Uh, so I, I felt really lucky to never have any injuries. And we had a lot of crossover between the Nordic team and the running team as well. So Rosie Brennan was, she's two years older than me and she came up through the Park City program as well. So she was on the cross country team. And so I kind of wanted to do everything that she was doing, of course. Um, so I would run in the fall, ski in the winter. And then I also ran track in the spring. Cool. All righty. Um, 
did you have any mentors kind of growing up and through this phase pre-college that you want to yeah I, mean, to? I think that Rosie was always someone that I looked up to because she came into the sport pretty late but she found success really quickly competing at the junior national level and so just having her as someone to train with and look up to um she was kind of my main mentor and then I think not necessarily in a mentor role, but I think um, when I was in high school, a lot of girls my age really looked up to Keegan because she was really one of the women on the US ski team who was kind of breaking barriers and she was doing it alone for a while. So she was someone that I think everyone looked up to. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Cool. Okay, so um, you went to college and at and skied for UNH, which is in Durham, New Hampshire. This is a long way from Park City, Utah, obviously. UNH is coached by a great guy and ski coach named Corey Schwartz, who has been there for a very long time and for good reason. He's really good at what he does. Can you talk about your motivation to go to UNH, how it was to ski for UNH and to be coached by Corey? Sure. So when I was a junior and senior in high school, looking at colleges, um, I was really drawn to the East Coast. I think at that point I hadn't had a lot of really standout results. And so I wasn't sure that I would be able to ski on one of the Western teams because they recruited so heavily um, from European countries. And so I ended up looking at almost every school on the East Coast and talking to a lot of the coaches. And I really liked um, the feel of the UNH team. And actually, um, I have an older brother, Dan, who is also a cross-country skier. And he he's just one year older than me, and he decided to go to UNH. And so because he was going there, I went and interviewed with Corey, um, met with him, and then decided to go there, um, partially because I liked the school and the academics, and partially because I got a scholarship. So it made it um, an affordable option. And I think it was, for me, just an awesome place to go because Corey's big emphasis is on team dynamics. And he really likes to make sure that anyone who joins the UNH team is all in um, on the team aspect, supportive of their teammates, and is going to work together to succeed. And so most of my really close friends from skiing are from UNH and I really attribute that to the team aspect that Corey has built there. Um, and at the time when I was looking, the UNH women's team was one of, I think they were consistently within the top three um, women's programs on the East Coast. And so that was also a draw because I've always enjoyed um, training with and racing with other top female athletes. And so knowing that um, that was a strong program and then we had room to build from there was kind of a, a big draw for me. So you mentioned one of the big draws or big attractions being the focus on team dynamics and team kind of continuity, team spirit. Um, but you can't deny you got a whole lot better while you were there. So there must've been some coaching going on too, not yeah. just fun and uh, parties. Yes, there absolutely was some coaching that happened. Um, 
So Corey has obviously a lot of experience in the sport. I think he's going into his 35th year of coaching. And then the assistant coach at UNH, Steve Monslick, um, he actually was pretty new to coaching when I joined the team. But he um, has gotten really into studying the physiology, studying technique. And so he was also a great resource for designing a training plan. And I think having like a group of girls, so I was there at the same time as Anya Caldwell Bean. And so having girls who really wanted to do well in the carnivals and then just training together, I think improved my fitness a lot. Super. So while you were at UNH, you improved quite a bit, as I mentioned, and you qualified for the World U23 Championships in Liberec, Czechoslovakia, or Czech Republic, rather, uh, mm -hmm. your senior year. How gratifying was that? And was this the first time where you thought that you had more potential than you had previously given yourself credit for? Um, yeah, I was really excited to qualify for U23s as a senior at UNH. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the first time um, that I felt that I had more potential because coming from junior skiing, um, I was pretty consistently among the top juniors in the country. Um, I, I think I finished second at junior nationals like four times in a row or something. So as a junior, I was always like kind of pushing for that top level. And then um, at UNH, I actually had a couple years where I didn't ski super well. And I was, I think one year I was first alternate for world juniors. And so I think making U23s was more, um, it kind of validated that I could ski where I wanted to and could reach that level. And when, so I was a senior in like January when I made it. And I think that was the first time that I realized that I wanted to do more in the sport, that once I graduated college, I wanted to continue on and keep skiing. That, that's kind of what I was getting at when I, when I said it the way I said it. Yeah. Like you, you were successful as a junior and you're skiing in college and you're doing pretty well. And then you make U23s, it's like, hey, wait a minute. This isn't junior nationals anymore. This is competing for the United States and Europe. It shows that I have the potential to to do whatever I want in this sport, at least on the, you know, as far as the US ski team goes and such. I mean, it, to me, that was kind of um, validation from the world back to you to say, hey, you know, you, you, you can do this at the senior level. It must have yeah. been profound for you. Yeah, and I think just having that exposure to international racing, I think was what made me realize this is really fun. It's cool yeah. to do uh, this kind of travel and then also just like get your feet wet on that. It's not quite the senior level, but U23s is uh, pretty competitive. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. I mean, you look at in the women's side, especially even world juniors, but you look at U23s, you look at the results sheet and then you look at world championships and in the top 10, you have a lot of those same names regularly. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So after you graduated from UNH, you went to the Green Racing Project in Craftsbury, Vermont. What attracted you to go to the GRP and Craftsbury rather than to go back to Park City or some other Western program? So um, it kind of actually goes back to that U23s in Liberec and the Czech Republic. So 
Pepe Milosheva, the head coach of the GRP, she was on that trip mm. as a coach. And so I got to meet her then. Um, and she was really, I think she was like the junior coach, not even the U23 coach, but she was really involved with making sure that all of the athletes had race support and coaching. And so I got to know her then. Um, and then as far as Western programs at that time, so Park City did not have an elite program and they never really have um, had an official program. So while I would have loved to be out West and you know work with Gordon, my high school coach, or kind of be close to my family, it didn't really seem like an established program. And uh, it's pretty, I feel like it's pretty difficult first years to kind of do it on their own. So I was drawn to the structure uh, of the Craftsbury program, knowing that there's really good support. So I wouldn't have to be constantly fundraising um, and I could just focus on my, my training was definitely a, a draw. And then I also had um, some UNH teammates who had gone to the Craftsbury program. So Dylan McGuffin, um, who is, I think, three years older than me, he skied for Craftsbury. And then Claire Egan uh, and I overlapped while at UNH, and she was still up in Craftsbury um, when I was a senior. And so talking to her about the program kind of made me realize that it would be a good fit for me. So you mentioned having had met Peppa at the U23s. I'd like to maybe dive into that a little bit because I think Peppa's quite unique as a coach. Uh -huh. um, she's the head coach of the GRP team. Can you tell us, can you describe Peppa? Just describe her, please. Okay, I'll try. So Peppa um, is, I think, one of the only female head coaches. She's the only elite team head coach who is female. And so having never had a female head coach, I was really excited to work with her. Um, she is from Bulgaria originally, and she's actually a world champion in ski orienteering. Um, so that's kind of her background. And then she moved to Krausbury, got involved with the outdoor center there. And as an Eastern European coach, she definitely um, tells it straight. She does not sugarcoat at all. So she is the type of coach who is going to give you super honest feedback but she also really cares about her athletes a lot. So I enjoyed working with her. I think it was a major change from my previous coaching, um, but I got a lot out of my, my years working with her. Cool. Um, there are a number of top college programs that have women, female head coaches. Right, yeah. Just, just to draw attention to that, um, Colby, Dartmouth, UAF, CU, and State Scholastica, to name some of them, mm -hmm. which is great, of course. Um, but in terms of the elite programs, I think PEP is the only one and, uh, and has been for uh, established for a long time. So that's great. What about um, in terms of what it was like to be coached by Peppa? Was she able to bring something out of you that needed to be brought out? Yeah, I think um, absolutely. And I think it was a combination of me joining a professional team and kind of dedicating a lot more time to ski training and 
um, focusing on specific things that could make me better. And then also just her coaching. She really um, emphasized strength training, which is something that in college I had done like, you know, a couple 45 minute strength sessions per week as part of our training. And that was something that she realized for me could make a big difference. And so we spent a lot of time in the gym and that really improved my skiing. And then technique wise, I think um, that's something that she focuses on a lot and just having someone to break down technique for me, take a lot of video was really helpful. I think sometimes in a high school or college team setting um, that gets lost a little bit with how many skiers you have and there's a lot going on. And so having her really focus on that, I think was super helpful. And then just getting into upping my training hours. Um, that kind of helped me make the jump eventually. I was really tired <laughs> my first year as a professional skier, oh. but then once I adjusted to the training load, um, I think that was where I found some more fitness. I think coaching Nordic skiers would be a, an unpleasant job if you didn't really love doing it and love skiing. But Peppa seems to have a special level of enthusiasm as well as concern and care for her athletes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, ski coaching is truly like her passion and her life. And so knowing that you have a coach who is there for you um, at any hour of the day, it was great. And just like having her, you know, it wasn't just that you would show up to a training session and she would be there, but she would also, um, if you needed anything like physical therapy wise, or you had anything else going on, she was someone that you could talk to and would be always looking for solutions in kind of any aspect of training. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing I think is quite special about the Green Mason Project, especially on the women's side, you've had, they've had some, the program's had some, quite some good male skiers over the years, but the women's yeah. side has been really, really strong, both in biathlon and in cross country. Uh -huh. um, so your training group was super competitive and advanced. And of course, as you alluded to earlier in the conversation, there's a lot of benefits from, from skiing with really good skiers on a daily basis. And on your day, as, as good as some of these teammates were of yours, on, any, on your day, you could ski with pretty much any of them. I mean, you know, you're right up there with them. Tell us what it was like to train daily with a team of World Cup regulars. Did you become quickly aware of your strengths and weaknesses and the opportunity to improve quickly and easily? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I joined the program, um, I was mostly training with Ida Sargent and Caitlin Patterson. And then we had Caitlin Miller join the team right after that. And so Ida is always someone who is a fantastic trainer. And she is, you know, very, very fast in almost all aspects. And so it was cool to see um, her, you know, skiing on the World Cup level. So you can see where that level is and you can kind of break down the steps that you need to get there. So I could do classic roller ski intervals and sometimes I could hang with 
um, Ida and Caitlin, and then I would have other um, workouts where I was a little bit farther behind and kind of see exactly where I could make those improvements. And then once, so when Caitlin Miller joined the team, I think she and I had a pretty similar background in that we were decent college skiers, but we weren't at the top of the field, um, either nationally or internationally. And both of us had fairly low training hours compared to what you are going for at an international level. And so I think we really gelled as training partners um, in terms of pushing each other, skiing together, and then also just like working through that kind of period of upping our training hours and getting you know, more serious about um, the sport. So I really enjoyed training with Kate, especially. Um, and then, yeah, the other girls on the team were, were really strong, but fun fun to run and ski and roller ski and all of that with. Super. If um, in November, 2016 in West Yellowstone, you won the 10K Classic Super Tour race. The West Yellowstone Super Tour races are probably the most competitive Super Tour events of the year, except for US nationals, which are mm-hmm. oftentimes Super Tour races. As everyone's looking for points and for, to qualify for the World Cup. Can you tell us about that race? That must've been really exciting and special for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I'll probably always think of that race as one of um, the best races of my career. And I really, coming into that training season, it wasn't like I was focusing specifically on that race, but somehow um, things really came together that summer and fall where I just had no injuries, no illnesses, and had a really good stretch of training. So I entered the season um, better than I had ever been before. And that race specifically, I remember it was, had been snowing a lot and um, the tracks were pretty soft and it was like almost like a whiteout during, during the race. Um, so I went out and tested skis and my skis felt incredible. And for whatever reason, when I was warming up, I was like, wow, my body also feels really good. And so that was just one where I went out and you described like having those flow races where you just feel so good the whole time. And that was one of them. And as we know from racing, not every race feels like that. You know, most of the races are pretty painful, but for whatever reason, I could just keep pushing in that race. And I got some splits out on the course that I was like five or 10 seconds up on second place. And I knew that I could, that I could hold that pace or push harder the whole time. So that was really exciting to, to have that result. And then couple that with um, some good results in skate races. And then uh, the following weekend, I think I was second in a classic sprint. So I was able to earn World Cup star rates from there. I was in about, I would say two Ks, a K and a half in on the first oh. lap. So I uh, saw so you, you know, both laps. And uh, I remember you skiing approaching and I was thinking, she's not going very fast, which is sometimes the case when someone's going really fast and skiing really well, you know. Um, yeah. And the section I was on, it was a gradual hill with a recovery section and then a kind of a sprinter's hill. And I remember thinking she's not going very fast. And I look at my watch and I'm like, that can't be right. And I looked at my watch again, I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> and it was really cool to see that you were leading, but you were also skiing in a 
in a comfortable manner, like in a controlled manner, that was no fluke. You were, you were that fast, you know? And I remember thinking that on that actual day, you know, if it was, if you were like, you know, busting up and using these short choppy strides and just like working your tail off and be like, okay, you know, see a second lap. This isn't going to be pretty, but you were clearly in control and skiing well and where you belonged, which was at the top of the results sheet. It was cool to see. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I think ever since I was in high school, um, my coach Gordo would say like, well, you never really look like you're skiing that fast, but then I look at the time and you are. And I think it, it has to do with being a pretty tall skier. So I'm 5'11 and um, when I ski well, I'm actually skiing relaxed and long. So sometimes it looks like it's in slow motion, but it's more about getting a little bit more out of each stride um, for me. That's where I make speed. I wanna talk specifically about that a little bit later because that's very interesting to me is technique and being a tall skier and how that might present advantages as well as disadvantages. Yeah. So let's talk about that in a bit. Um, if I look at your 12 Super Tour top five finishes, nine were in classic technique as was your third place US Nationals finish and your best World Cup results, skiathlon was the 13th place. But we all know, even though the finish in a skiathlon skate, the classic leg is super important. And oftentimes people who are stronger in classic do very well in skiathlons. And then the classic sprint, you were 24th in the World Cup. So despite having had some excellent skate races, I think it's fair, or is it fair to say that you are quite a bit stronger in classic, both sprint and distance? Yeah, that is absolutely fair to say. And I wish I could describe why, because I've spent so many hours working on skate technique and for some reason, classic just always clicked for me. So I had a, a Caitlin Miller's results are even more skewed. She didn't seem to realize it when we were talking about, and then she was like, wow. But um, for example, I think she had, I think it was 24 super tour podiums, uh, 25 podiums and 24 of them were in classic. Wow. <laughs> yeah, as, as you know, all of our best results. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we discussed why, and she didn't have any good answers except for, she, she did say, like you just said, she worked really hard in her skating technique and tried to develop her skating. So I had some questions about that because it's yeah. kind of curious to me. So first, the, the Green Racing Project team that you're a member of had Ida Sargent and Caitlin Miller. Um, Ida, I think, is also quite a bit stronger in classic than in skate. She's darn good in skate, obviously. But um, if I were to pick a race for her, it'd be classic sprint, you know. Mm -hmm. And do you think that maybe there was, you all trained together. Do you think there's some kind of rubbing off on each other? Or why is it that you think that so many people in that program seem to be better in classic than in skate? I'm curious. I, I honestly think it's a fluke. Um, it's just a coincidence. Um, and also like Caitlin Patterson, who is still racing for the Green Racing Project is a fantastic skate skier. And so I don't think there's anything in our training or what we're doing that made us stronger in classic. Personally, I've always been a little bit stronger. I think like um, my, my stronger results in podiums in college came in the classic technique. 
Um, I do, I think there were a couple workouts that we did on the GRP that were um, specific to classic skiing that really helped me to perform better in that technique. But at the same time, it, like I said before, it just always clicked for me. Classic skiing, like being so linear, I felt like I could push and get a result. Like I would push harder and go faster. And sometimes in skate skiing, it would be like, okay, the harder I push, the more tired I get. <laughs> and then I would, don't, wouldn't go as fast. So yeah, I'm not sure if I can entirely explain it. I think someone listening to this podcast would be dis disappointed if I didn't say, can you say one or two of those workouts that seem to help you so much in making progress in classic? Sure. So one of the really kind of funky ones that we would do is grass skiing in the summer. So we would take out like old beater skis um, and we would have a, essentially a hay field that was mowed and we would put the skis on and just like run as fast as we could up a short section. I think it was maybe like 15, 20 seconds. So developing that turnover and speed um, without roller skis, which can be kind of clunky, I think that really helped me in the summer. And then I could directly apply that to like a classic sprint in the winter. And then I think the other workout that was pretty key was doing level three um, running with poles intervals, mm -hmm. just on like kind of a gradual to steep uphill um, five to six by 10 minutes. Um, so just like a pure fitness workout. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that grass skiing, you know, that, 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 that makes its rounds on the internet every, every yeah. off season, you know, and it's always fun to watch. But I think that's really good for the neuromuscular coordination because you absolutely don't have that roller skiing and roller skiing. It's almost like you ski with slower tempo and a super strong mule kick. You get mm -hmm. rewards because the roller ski kick is so, you know, strong. And then you jump on those skis. Next thing you're using your hip flexors and you're staying light and quick. And not only does it keep you in touch with skiing, but I think it develops the neuromuscular turnover and coordination that's so important when you're going fast on classic skis in an uphill. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Cool. So I love Craftsbury and I'm sure you do too. You spent quite a lot of time there. Uh -huh. um, I love the trails, the trails, especially coming, you know, spending, I'm not, I'm not from the West and from the East, but I've lived a lot of my life in the West and there are no trails in the West that are like Craftsbury. You know, the terrain just does not exist in the West. Most of your trails are on roads, you know, they're roads in the summer and uh, the Craftsbury trails are so fun to ski and I would call them skiers trails. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of fun downhills and more than anything, they have tons of transitions that you put on a road, people are getting stuck and going off the road on, you know? Yeah. Um, they generally have great snow, but if they don't, they have snowmaking and they store snow over the summer. The center in general is very careful to live coexisting with nature rather than dominating it or contaminating it. Can you please comment on the Craftsbury Outdoor Center in, in general and, you know, what you love so much about it? Yeah, I think it's like, truly kind of a magical place. It's like such a skier haven there. Um, and I think that uh, Judy Gear and Dick Dreisigager have just done a really good job of developing the center and uh, making sure that, like you mentioned, their environmental impact is carefully considered in everything that they do. 
But at the same time, um, there's a lot of sports going on there and happening at a very high level. And then there's also a lot of community programs in Craftsbury as well. And so it's truly like people across, um, you know, the whole spectrum from kids to 80 year olds. And then you have Olympic skiers there. Um, so it's a cool dynamic. And then as far as the skiing, like when you just mentioned that, it made me really miss skiing at Craftsbury, actually. Yeah. Uh, they have, I think they have like 100 kilometers of groomed trails, including the Greensboro trail system. So in the winter, I wasn't always there to train uh, between traveling to races, but it was just a really special place to train. I, on any day, you can, you can go out and ski two and a half hours and not really repeat any trails at all, so. Yeah, pretty cool place to train. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just having a big trail network, but the trails have a lot of transitions and overlook. Mm -hmm. You know, you overlook and you see the hills like getting fainter and fainter in the distance, but you can see those lines or um, come up on a bluff and you see this red barn, you know, with the silo. And I don't know, it's um, it's very New Eng Northern New England Nordic and charming, but the, but the terrain to me is also quite unique if you don't spend time in New England, you know, you're from, let's say the Intermountain West or the mm -hmm. Rocky Mountain West, you just don't have that kind of terrain. Yeah, I really enjoy skiing through the trees there. And I think that's something that you don't get out West a lot. So yeah. you have kind of windier trails that are, uh, have a little more interest and then you'll pop out into a meadow. There will be like cows or a barn or something through there. And I think another thing that Crossbury does really well is their grooming because their groomers there are good to the point of obsessive. They just make really nice trails to ski on. So, yeah. Um, one other interesting aspect about the GRP team as well as Crossbury is the GRP athletes generally receive jobs that they do to contribute to the outdoor center. These jobs can range from trying to improve the heating efficiency uh, of the buildings to coaching kids, for example. What was your job when you were at the COC? Oh, so I was on the team for seven years. So I did a lot of different jobs when I was there. And I found myself really wanting to diversify what I was doing, whether it was to keep from getting bored from um, one certain thing or, you know, just an interest in a lot of different aspects. So in the summertime, um, I taught an adult fitness class once a week. It was like a circuit based class. Um, I was involved in organizing a community 5K and running and mountain biking. So that was kind of a weekly thing that we did. Um, and actually Caitlin Miller and then Hallie Grossman, who's on the biathlon side, we kind of worked together to organize time, um, all of that for those races. And then I coached mountain biking and skiing, um, mostly kids programs, a little bit of adult and master's level. And then I worked in the garden. <laughs> so that was kind of my summertime work. And then in the winter, I transitioned a little bit more to like website stuff, writing blogs and news reports, um, transitioning. We transitioned over to a new website at Craftsbury last year. And then I also like to do um, some ski coaching and helping out with community races in the winter 
So it was all sorts of stuff, but really fun. And I think my favorite jobs were just anything that involved interacting with the community there. So I have a couple of questions. First, the vegetable garden. When I was a little kid, we had a vegetable garden and I was in charge of radishes and carrots. Mm-hmm. Did you have a section? Because there were other people that were also vegetable garden people. Did you have a section that was kind of yours or did you all share in the whole garden? No, so Craftsbury in the summertime, they have, I think three or four different locations for gardens, um, including up at the kids summer camp up the road. So we had four people, I think, who are on staff who were paid, not athletes, but actually paid to run the garden. And then the GRP athletes would come out um, usually after lunch, we would just do a couple of hours of helping um, the garden workers with whatever they were doing at the time. So I didn't necessarily have like one section or one vegetable that I would do, but sometimes it would be like, all right, I guess I'm harvesting squash every Wednesday at this time. So you kind of got into the rhythm of it. I got to ask obnoxious question. So did you have a favorite vegetable that you had that you harvested or worked on? Like, did you have a favorite section? Um, I really like doing tomatoes. I think that so before I moved to Craftsbury, I didn't like tomatoes. I wouldn't eat them at all. And I think it was because I had only had like really bad supermarket watery tomatoes. And when I got there, the garden went, the ladies who worked in the garden were horrified. And they were like, you have to try this vine ripened like cherry tomato. And that was like a huge moment for me. Okay. These are really good vegetables. Like it makes a big difference when something is fresh and organic. So I loved, I loved picking tomatoes. I like taking care of them. And so I have one more question before we get back to skiing. Yeah. <laughs> you were teaching the adult fitness class. Mm-hmm. One thing that is interesting about Craftsbury is it's really isolated. Where were your fitness clientele, class clientele people coming from, like Morrisville and Stowe, or where are they coming from? No, they were more coming from the surrounding areas. So like Glover, um, there were a bunch from Craftsbury actually, and then uh, the Greensboro area. I think Craftsbury, like the outdoor center being there, it's kind of, it's created actually a pretty strong endurance community where you'll see a lot of community members who are involved in rowing and skiing and are pretty active. So yeah, I don't think anyone, there might've been a few who came from Morrisville, but I I don't think we had anyone from Stowe. And it was a small class, it was like 10 people. Okay, because I mean, if you take like a 15 minute drive in any direction from Craftsbury, what is that like uh, 500 people or something? I don't know, (laughs) It's pretty small. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe like 1,000 to 1,500. <laughs> okay. okay. It's rural, for sure. <laughs> <clears throat> Back to skiing. So we, you mentioned, we mentioned earlier that you're a tall skier. <clears throat> I wanted to get your thoughts on this because uh, I know you have, you're very educated in this and you have a unique perspective. Do you think that being tall gave you an advantage in some situations and perhaps a disadvantage in others? Skate versus classic, sprint versus distance, flats versus climbing, double pole sprint, etc or if nothing else trying to intimidate your competition before a, a sprint final definitely the last one for sure. <laughs> um yeah i think that um 
Nordic skiing is cool because you see a lot of different uh, body types having success, which I really like that aspect. It's not like gymnastics where you have to be, you know, a certain body type to succeed. And I think it's mostly just finding um, how to improve your strengths and then work on your weaknesses. So back to working with Peppa, she was um, really instrumental in helping me figure out how to use my height to my advantage. And I think the first thing she did was um, just tell me that I needed to use my length more. And she would say that over and over. And then figuring out how I could use like my full reach um, in all techniques, whether double pulling or striding, and then still maintain that turnover that I needed to do well in races was uh, really like a big turning point for me. And I think taller skiers in general um, can struggle with climbing for sure. I know that I did because you just don't necessarily generate the same turnover that can be really effective on steep climbs. And so I think in individual start races, especially, I felt like, okay, if I can ski really long and relaxed on the flats, that I'll make up a lot of time there. And then it was more about um, minimizing the losses on the uphills. And I don't necessarily think that taller skiers are better at skate or classic. Like, I don't think that that was really related to my height, but I think certainly um, finding myself succeeding more on the flats, really being able to make up some time there. Um, if, if I look at a World Cup field, men or women, and I look at body types, I would say the smallest, most successful skiers, the trend would be skate distance. Mm -hmm. And then the most successful tall skiers would be classic sprint. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's definitely true. And I, um, I think classic sprinting was my favorite discipline out of all of them. So I, I could definitely see how having that length um, and reach in classic sprinting is really helpful. Like whether it's kind of double pulling down a gradual downhill um, which a lot of the finishing stretches are like that, I think that can be used to your advantage. I mean, if I look at, let's say the men's field and look at skate distance, I'm having a hard time thinking of a single skier who's not Russian. And I'll exclude those for obvious reasons, but a single skier who's really tall, who's successful in the World Cup in skate sprint, I can't, I can't think of a single one just offhand anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay, some of the Norwegians are, are solid, you know, and yeah. they're, yeah. Um, but there are a lot of shorter, much shorter skiers who do really well in, in, in skate distance who, um, that's the only thing they're good at, you know, for the most part. So it's kind of interesting to think about body type and advantage, yeah. disadvantage. Um, and you mentioned flats versus climbing. That makes a lot of sense because the angles that having a taller body creates, you can use in a flat, but in the climb, because you're taller, it makes you also heavier. And the return on that, that height doesn't exist in a climb. Whereas in a flat, 
being taller, thus also heavier, has less of a, a disadvantage and more of an advantage. So I see that. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, did you ever think about, okay, I'm tall. How do I minimize my disadvantages, for example, on the climbs? You know how to maximize your advantages in the flats, but how yeah. do I minimize my disadvantage? Yeah, it was definitely um, learning to ski with a little bit higher tempo on the climbs. And um, honestly, just being really fit <laughs> because fitness is always gonna help with climbing. And so I found that times when I really nailed my training and came into the season in really good shape that I was able to do better in like a skate distance event, for example just because maybe my technique wasn't perfect for climbing, but at least I had the fitness to make it up the hill. I should say you always looked really good on skis. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm making you out to be, you know, some giant skier or something, but you've always looked great, great on skis, real natural and coordinated and, and you looked really good too. So I just thought I should point that out. Liz, do you have a favorite race that you ever have done? A day that brought great emotion or memories? And can you describe, it doesn't have to be necessarily your best result ever, but just your best best day on skis, kind of. Yeah, I think that one of my favorite days on skis um, was actually at a Super Tour race up in Ishpeming in Michigan. So um, for anyone who hasn't skied there before, the courses are really fun. They're kind of like this perfect grade for uphill striding and they have pretty fast, um, windy downhills and so I always really enjoyed skiing there and we had a super tour race and it was a 5k classic which is one of my favorite distances and um, we had awesome wax that day and I, I don't even remember what place I got in the race but I do remember that the Craftsbury women um, swept the podium that day in the super tour so it was Caitlin Miller, Caitlin Patterson and myself and it was just a fun day to feel like I went out and had a really good race and I felt awesome but we it was like a shared team moment with everyone knowing that the wax techs had absolutely nailed um somewhat tricky waxing and then my teammates like also had uh, a really good day so I remember the feeling of the three of us finishing the race, realizing we had stopped the podium and then going to cool down together and just kind of experiencing that together was was a really cool moment, I guess. So that's really special for me to listen to because, well, first, first that was that site where Caitlin Miller won her only Super Tour skate race. Or maybe it was a podium, I can't remember. It was her only podium. Yeah, I think it was in, it was in the skate sprint. Right, exactly. Yeah, the yeah, skate sprint. Um, but when I talked with, I talked with Caitlin Patterson and I talked with Caitlin Miller and pretty much all the green team athletes, when they talk about the same with Ida, they talk about their most memorable race. Like you just did. It wasn't about their result. It was about the feeling and the team and the camaraderie. Like Caitlin said, her favorite race was when she was second in us nationals, Caitlin Patterson won. It was Caitlin's Patterson's first title. And she was so excited. Well, that same week, Caitlin Miller won one of the races at nationals, but that wasn't the race that she was re recalling so fondly. And it's the same with you. You've won super tours. You've won some really big races, 
and you don't even remember what place you were on this day. It was just, it was so beautiful. This, you know, the three of you were on the podium. You don't even know what place you were on the podium. It just says a lot about the program and about the camaraderie you all had. And um, it sounds really, really special. That's great. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, Nordic skiing is an individual sport, but I think that the reason why we keep doing it is when you have those team moments. Like, it doesn't really mean anything if it's just you, but when you can share that with your teammates and your coach and your wax techs, I think that that's the most meaningful part of the sport. Totally agree. So do you have a favorite workout? You've mentioned a couple already that seem to help you a lot in classic, but I'm just curious if you had a workout that, I think when people retire as well and you want to maintain some kind of fitness, you kind of have this core workout that that um, kind of gets you where you want in a hurry. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm just curious if you have a workout that for you is so core, you know that if you do it, you're well prepared. Yeah, so I think I already mentioned my favorite workout, which is the level three running with poles, um, just like five by 10 minutes up a hill. And that was always one where I finished and I felt fitter than when I started. So that was kind of like a bread and butter that I always wanted to do more. And I think a lot of times Peppa was like, okay, you don't need to do that workout more. <laughs> like you've got it, you got to do some skate roller skiing instead. Um, but I also think that just going back to basics, like something that I've been doing ever since I was in high school skiing for um, Gordon Lang is just, four by four intervals, like nothing will get you ready for racing faster than just going out and going hard uh, four by four minutes. But I actually, as a retired skier, I don't really do intervals anymore. So I'm kind of waiting for the, the urge to come back to be like, okay, now I wanna do intervals. I'm enjoying the distance skiing um, and running and mountain biking for sure. Cool. Back when I was, um basically a full-time athlete that was my bread and butter workout was running with poles 10 by three minutes mm -hmm. same deal gradual terrain for sure and then um i've also found that i don't i didn't do them back in my in the day but the last few years i've for sure identified coaching my daughter pearl as well as for myself the four by fours are are perfect because you get everything done that you want to, you, know, you get all the effect you want to get and then you're done and you're out there and you can do them a, three days later and you get it yeah. again, you know, as compared to doing something more comprehensive that beats you up and, and might create more issues than benefit, you know? Yeah, it's efficient and it's like kind of the perfect amount, I agree. Sure. Okay, you retired last spring and you're currently, I believe, 29 years old. Uh-huh. Okay, which is about the time when athletes, when distance athletes tend to hit their peak. What was your motivation in retiring last spring did the spring World Cup cancellations due to the COVID pandemic contribute to your retirement or was that already your plan? Yeah, so it was already my plan. I had made my final decision back in February before any of the COVID stuff happened. Um, and I think I, I did know that, yeah, I was 29, I could have some um, successful years ahead of me, but I think we've also talked about that um, kind of my peak in my ski racing career was in 2017. So 
I've had um, a couple of years following that season where I was kind of struggling to meet my goals and to feel like I was really getting a lot out of the sport. Um, and I think I always had in my mind that I would keep ski racing as long as I was having fun and improving and there was nothing else that I wanted to do more than I wanted to ski race. So gradually I began to feel um, like that wasn't the case anymore, mm. that I was working hard and not necessarily um, reaching where I wanted to be. And I just started to feel more and more like, I think there's other things in life that I'm missing out on that I wanna do um, rather than ski racing. And I think a big part of it was living in such a rural part of Vermont. Um, I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to further my education or career living there. So I gradually would uh, kind of let go of the idea that I was gonna continue on in ski race and was ready for, for other parts of life. Um, and then, in 2020, I had qualified for the World Cup races in Quebec and Minneapolis. And I was just planning to use those as um, kind of like my retirement and goodbye to the sport. And then they got canceled, but. <laughs> That's one of the cool things about cross-country ski racing is you're not, you, it's not possible to do it professionally for life. Uh -huh. There is an end game. I mean, you know, you, you know that we all know it and you can do it for life, but then you're doing it after that in balance with the rest of your life, which is kind of cool, you know? Yeah. And so kind of by design, being a full-time professional cross-country ski racer, you've got an expiration date and then you, you know, you're looking forward to real life, other challenges, others, you know, and it's, it's kind of a cool thing to have such an intense unique experience and then to move on and to le have learned from it and benefited from it and to, to develop yourself in other facets of life. Yeah. And I, that's what I was looking forward to the most is to kind of taking on different challenges. I think when you are training year round, doing a lot of the same workouts and, and work through the outdoor center and then traveling to a lot of the same places for racing, it can start to feel, um, a little bit repetitive or stale. And if you find that you're still improving and really enjoying it, then that's great. I just, I reached a point where um, I was like, okay, here we are in West Yellowstone in November. So it just, it felt like I wasn't really pushing myself um, out of my comfort zone anymore. So that's when I wanted to do some different stuff. For sure. And also um, you're adventurous. You know, we love the outdoors and adventuring outdoors and everything. Let's say in my case, I waste in Northern Italy numerous times, numerous years. I never once actually saw the Dolomites. Hmm. You know, I never once actually went out and explored in the Dolomites. I've done that a ton since then. And it's right. the same with a number of other areas. Like, you know, you in order to be professional and to try to achieve your potential, you got to put those blinders on and, and to be as professional as, and as focused as you can. And um, there's a lot more to life than that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to do that and then to put the stuff down and then go out and have some fun and, and grow in other directions. So I, I love that. It's great. So one of the things you're doing now, well, so now you're living in Park City, Utah, and you're obviously very active, having a blast riding your bikes, hiking, skiing, distance skiing, no intervals, et cetera. 
one of the things you're doing is you're coaching the U14s at Park City Ski and Snowboard. I imagine it's rewarding to coach young skiers and impart some of what your hard-earned knowledge and savvy, some of your hard-earned knowledge and savvy, as well as to have the opportunity to show them what a great sport and activity Nordic skiing is. And of course, you grew up in that program, so it's kind of neat to, to kind of revisit, you know, I'm sure there's a deja vu, look over, you know, cycle of life thing, but um, can you comment on, um, on how it is to be coaching those kids? I'm sure you're learning some things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been really fun to work with the Park City Ski and Snowboard program. So I'm with U14, which is mostly like middle schoolers. Um, and we, I started in October, I think. So we started out with dry land and now we're into um, skiing four days a week. And I think that if I can impart anything to the group of kids that I work with, I just want it to be kind of the love of sport and getting an appreciation for what Nordic skiing is as a lifelong sport. And I often think back to what it was like when I was younger and I was skiing for the program and the reasons why I kept doing it. And a lot of it was um, the social aspect, just making good friends through skiing. And I see that in the kids that I coach as well. And so I really want them to develop relationships. And then we, we definitely try and have a lot of fun and practice. And I think that that's really important, especially in that age group. Like when you get into high school racing um, and you have kids who are wanting to take it more seriously, then you can focus more on the technique and you know, training and all of that. But for, for my age group, like, yes, we do intervals. Yes, we work on technique, but I think um, having those times when you go out for a distance ski or you are going through the powder just for the fun of it, going off jumps, playing games, um, I think all of that is, is really important for coaching. So for sure. <laughs> One thing that looking back at when I was a kid, um, intensity slash speed workouts that were especially fun or relay format you know your recovery is when someone else is working and then they tag you and you're working and you ever get a chance to incorporate that kind of stuff in the kids practice um, yeah yeah we do relays at least once a week i would say and i think i would i would classify them as like secret intervals because <laughs> i've seen kids in a relay go harder than i have ever seen them in an interval workout and i think it's at that at that age, especially, that's how you really bring out um, the competitive juices. And then um, we do intervals too, but I think relays are, are really fun. Yeah, the difference between the relay races and the interval workouts is in the relays, they're grinning ear to ear. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're doing that in the interval workouts, <laughs> even though they're going <laughs> just <really>. as fast. <laughs> cool. Um, you also, have, have you learned anything coaching those kids now, I'm sure you're teaching them plenty about the sport and a little technique here and there but I'm have you learned anything or, or realized anything oh that's a good question I think um yeah I think I've learned a lot about how um coaching kids is just really different from working with any other age group and how um, you really have like kind of a limited amount of time to impart any sort of 
technical information because just the attention span is just not quite there to, you know, sit down and really break down technique for like 30 minutes. That's not going to happen. And so um, I think I've I've really been working on getting that information across as well as I can and then figuring out other creative ways to um, teach kids skiing, whether it's just by following athletes or following a coach um, or doing some sort of like drill or game that teaches those skills. And it's not necessarily just like, you know, talking about technique with a group. Well, you also coach or teach with the Bettys. This is a large women's Nordic club based in Park City area. Can you first describe the Bettys and then we'll get into what it's like coaching and teaching the Bettys. But the Bettys are, I would say, pretty much a unique club in the United States. Yeah, I think the, so the Bettys are modeled after a similar program up in Sun Valley called the Vamps. And it's essentially just um, a master's women's um, skiing, Nordic skiing program. And I think the goal is just to get more women introduced to the sport and feeling confident and competent that they can go out and ski on their own. So we're just trying to introduce more women. And we have um, all sorts of different levels, starting from people who have never put on Nordic skis before, all the way up to what we call like our advanced group, who is women, they may be um, interested in racing or they might be interested in just getting a little bit um, more efficient or better technique for skiing. So I'm very familiar with the Vamps. I'm good, I'm friends with the founders and a lot of the coaches and I'm very familiar with them. I understand the similarities between the two but I think the betas are quite different. For starters, um, the demographics are different. The betas on average are quite a bit younger uh-huh. And the vamps do a lot of international travel, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like travel slash racing. The huge group will go to World Masters, or a huge group will go. And um, it's a different vibe, a little bit, although they're having a blast everywhere they go. But with you all, there's, there's a, it seems just from what I've seen, and I, I wanted to get your take on this, but there's a lot of people entering skiing through the Bettys. Like they're, they're, they're starting cross-country skiing through this massive women's club in Park City. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, picking up any sport later in life can be really intimidating. And I think that there's a pretty big skew between uh, men's and women's participation in Nordic skiing. And I just notice it when I'm out like skiing at the local touring center. And so it's just a way to kind of get more women involved in the sport. And I mean, we also emphasize the social aspect because, you know, we want it to be fun. And I think a lot of women meet each other through the sport and then they have someone to go out and ski with um, and also hopefully pick up some skills along the way so that they can kind of advance in their skiing. I think the, the vamps also have, they do a lot of hardcore workouts um, there's some really, like I remember Muffy said, okay, everyone double pull from the SNRA to Baker, you know, and mm-hmm. on the Airman Trail, that's yeah. a hard, hard workout, right? Yeah, we, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm saying there's some, there's some similarities, but there are obvious similarities, but there are some obvious differences too. And so 
if I were to ask you how many people are members of the Bettys, it's a difficult question to answer because it seems like it's growing by the week quickly. So we have a lot of women who have come through the program. And so I think the overall group is pretty big, but I think we have like 70 women in skating right now and then like 25 in classic. And that's people who are currently enrolled. And then there's a waiting list as well. So there are people who are getting lessons from Betty's instructors who are not Betty's, is that correct? Because I go to White Pine some days and I'll see three different groups of Betty's in three different parts of the course. You're, you were teaching one of them, for example, and each one is like 20 people. Yeah, I think we have groups of about like eight to 10 women, but then we'll have five coaches there um, on like a Betty's morning. So yeah. Are all those people Betty's members or some people getting taught by Betty's instructors but aren't yet Betty's members? No, they're, they're all Betty's members. Well, that's, that's a big club and remarkable. And it's really cool how many new skiers are coming in to the sport through Betty's and with the right you know, a lot of people come into the sport and they try it and they're like, heck with that, I'm not doing that anymore because there wasn't the social aspect, the terrain was too difficult, they had a bad experience. But with you all, you've got all the elements to set them up for success. They've got the social aspect, they've got someone helping them out and looking out for them. The terrain is is easy to ski, you know, it's, it's all very uh, success friendly. Yeah, and that's the goal really is to make it fun and to get people hooked on the sport because they have a good experience. Yeah, for sure. So can you um, talk about what it's like to be teaching or coaching Betty's? Um, it is extremely different from my work that I do with Park City Ski and Snowboard um, in that working with master's women, um, we do a lot of talking and breaking down technique. And there's a lot of interest and questions in the specifics of what we're doing. So we spend a lot of time like talking through different aspects of if we're classic skiing, we'll break down double pole. If we're striding, then we'll do drills um, and different things to kind of improve our striding technique. And so it's a much more like focused on technique and repetition and drills and then um, a lot of a lot of questions and interaction as well so we don't do a ton of distance skiing because um, it's I don't really consider it to be like a training program I think if if somebody wants to go out and ski then and they're interested in it then they'll do that but when they come to Betty's they're really trying to learn and get better at, at skiing. So it's been um, definitely a challenge for me to try and break down uh, the different aspects of technique um, and figure out how to explain them and you know teach it in a way that makes sense to someone who doesn't know what a V2 is or so, um, is really new to the sport. So I've seen you out there coaching. How many of the people that you work with started skiing this year? So I'm not working with any um, newbie, like beginner groups this year. So everyone that I'm working with has been skiing for at least, I wanna say three to four years. But So there are I other, other Betty's groups that are all new this year. Yeah, there's, I think there's a group of, we have like two, 
new bee beginner groups on Tuesdays, and then we have two more on Wednesdays who are absolutely new to the sport. I've cool. never put on skate skis before. Yeah, and I've seen that. So on one hand, you've got the Park City Ski Team you're coaching, and you've got this limited opportunity to impart knowledge, and it has to be done probably mostly in the form of example or one short sentence. Yeah. Something along those lines. And then you've got the Bettys, which is almost the opposite. They've got tons of attention span and they don't want to ski too, too much. So they're really looking for you to break it all down for them in detail. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different mindset and mode of communication. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the drills you would do with the Bettys are completely different from the drills that you might be doing with the uh, U12s, U14. Yeah, U14. Um, You also are a ski instructor at White Pine Touring Center. Mm -hmm. I would have to guess that pretty much everyone you teach there is a first timer or close to a first timer. Is that right? Yeah, I would say probably 90% of the people who come in are totally new. So I've had an experience many times where I've either run a clinic and I've got 60 usually ladies looking at me and they're like, you know, I don't know how to put my skis and poles on, much less ski. And I'm in this mm -hmm. position where I can get someone from being a darn good skier to an elite skier pretty easily. But to that point, you have to completely, you really, you really need to be taught how to teach skiing. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have ideas and stuff, but they're not as good as what the PSIA is putting out or what experienced ski instructors put out. Um, can you talk about your learning curve in how to teach rank beginners how to ski? For sure. So I, um, because I don't remember learning how to ski, it actually was really difficult for me in the beginning um, to work with beginners. And I was, I was pretty nervous about it. And so I actually, what I ended up doing is I just like pulled up a bunch of YouTube videos from the I think it's PSIAA, so the organization. Yeah. And I literally looked through videos of how to learn how to Nordic ski, which I, I felt silly doing, but they prepared me um, so much more for instructing at White Pine. And then I also um, went out with some of the instructors, which was really helpful just to have them show me like different drills. Okay, this is how you tell people how to put their skis on. And if you actually have like a method and a, an idea of how to describe that to people, you'll be a lot more successful. And one thing that comes to mind is like teaching how people how to get up from a fall. So if I'm ever working with a beginner, I always take them through that progression of, okay, pretend like you just fell and now we're going to learn how to get up from a fall. Because if you don't know how to describe that to someone and then they're not able to get up on their own, it just leads to frustration. So when I'm working with beginners, my whole goal is just to minimize frustration. Like we want people to have a good experience on their first time. And so taking them through a progression is really helpful. So I have a couple things then. First, when I go skiing, I go skiing and generally there are people falling all over the place. Uh-huh. Um, I go skiing in Soldier Hall a lot, but you know, other places I go, and there are people, you know, they're thankfully there are new people coming into the sport and they're falling down and you know trying to figure it out. And generally when that happens, if I ever see anybody who's having a hard time, I generally stop and I try to show them how to get up from falling. That's a 
you know, just I want everyone to have a positive experience. Yeah. I'd love to hear your explanation as to how to teach people to get up because I think I'll be doing it right, but uh, maybe there's a better way of doing it and I want to be a better help. Yeah, for sure. So I think main thing is getting your skis perpendicular to the slope so they're not pointing um, uphill or downhill because that does not lead to success. And then um, getting your skis parallel. So there's something called the dead bug where you roll onto your back, untwist your skis, get them next to each other, and then you flop over onto the side so that the skis are lined up and they're ready to go. And then the main thing is that you have to get your weight in front of your feet. Right. So using your hands to kind of like walk yourself around um, so that your weight is in front of your boots and bindings. And then you can kind of, people do it a little bit differently, but generally you end up in kind of like a telly position and then you push up from there. And using that, I've gotten almost everyone to be able to get up on their own. I have a few people who just say, I can't do it. And then I just say, that's okay. Just take your, one of your skis off or take both of your skis off and then get up from there. So I'm on board with all of that. The, 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 the place that I try to get them is they're on their hands and knees. Uh -huh. and their knees and their hands are in front of their bindings. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, and of course their skis aren't up or down. So when they do start to stand up, they're not gonna go flying out from underneath them. But the yep. problem that I oftentimes find is the last third of the standing up process. Yeah. Where they can't push with their hands anymore and their legs aren't strong enough in many cases to stand up. Do you have them use a pole or, cause I don't want to help them. I, they, I want to teach them how to do it on their own, you know, instead of pulling them up by their armpit. How do you do that last third? I actually think that getting into a tele position is helpful there because then you're kind of more in a lunge and you have like a wider base for standing up. So I think that can be helpful. I also, at that point, you can transition to using your poles. So if you're holding them in your hands and you're using your hands to push up, then once you get most of the way up, then you can start to use the pole tips, but that can be a little dangerous because using your, your poles are kind of unwieldy, so. Sure. So another question I had, I was skiing at White Pine earlier this year and there was a guy I came across and he was clearly a, at least I thought it was a first time skier, but maybe it wasn't, but he, he looked like a first time skier to me. And he looked like he was trying really hard to figure it out. Um, it would have been a good thing for him to take a lesson, but he didn't. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to stop and help this guy out. And so I spent about 10 minutes with him trying to help him out. And Lou Audi came along. Mm -hmm. Lou Audi is a, an iconic person in the in Park City area, but also the Michigan area. He's a fantastic guy, a good ski instructor. And he saw me helping this guy. And I introduced him to Lou. And I said, I'm going to keep skiing with my daughter, um, but I'll check in with you. And Lou's like, man, you should get a lesson. And I said, ah, I'll help you out for a few minutes. And Lou had him take off one of his skis. And so he was out there skiing with one ski. It was ski, he was skating. And he was skiing with one ski. And I could not believe the progress he made in a few minutes with Lou as compared to 10 minutes with me. And I mean, I know skiing, I can get a person to be at the elite level very quickly, but I clearly wasn't that good at teaching a beginner. And so I was really impressed with how Lou went about that and I mean, have you, have you an escape, learned a skate lesson, had someone take a ski off and they're, you know, doing the skateboard thing, you know, here and there. I, I it never occurred to me to do that. 
Yeah, I actually haven't done that in a skate lesson. I like to have people marathon skate. So they put one ski in the track and then they push off with their other ski because it forces them to isolate each leg in a pushing motion. And oftentimes we can move like from the marathon skate into skating with no poles pretty successfully. But I also think like Lou especially has a lot of kind of tricks that he knows. And if you know those tricks, then you can you can use them and like really progress people. And it's kind of amazing. So I talked to the other ski instructors, they give me yeah. ideas on what to do. So I'm pretty sure that day Lou had him take a ski off and do that. And then he went to the marathon skate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, um, and I could not believe how much he improved in those few minutes with Lou. You know, I, I thought I knew what I was doing. And I, I've taught a lot of people how to ski before. You know, I've, I've learned to ski clinics. I've done three of them at Soldier Hollow with 65 participants each. You know, like I, I feel like I did a pretty good job over the years and, and other people have. And I'm a total amateur compared to actual ski instructors. And I'm totally fine admitting that. Um, but at the same time, I like helping people. So what I really had to do is probably spend some time with you or Lou or someone and get some pointers and <laughs> and get more adept at teaching beginners. Lou has years of experience, so he's a great person to talk to about ski instructing. Absolutely. So I asked you about this before. Um, you grew up in Park City racing in the junior program with Gordon Lang. Then you flew the coop, skied and studied in New Hampshire, trained and raced in Crashbury and all over the world. And now you're back in Park City with your old club. It's got to be rewarding, I would think, to kind of gun that circle and and to be teaching kids and and also I don't know, but this you know that whole uh, Lion King circle of life thing. You know, now you're teaching the next people going to be traveling the world, skiing around, and and they're going to be teaching the next. Is do you have any feelings of that when you're when you're teaching those kids, or how does it feel? Um, yeah, definitely. I think that, um, for me having spent so many years, um, competing in college and on the elite level, um, I've really seen how much the sport of Nordic skiing has given to me. Like it's, it's truly been incredible. The travel I've done, the places I've been to, the race experiences I've had, and then, I mean, essentially my, I can owe my college education to the sport. So I think um, through, whether it's coaching with Park City or ski instructing, it's really been an opportunity to give back to the sport. So if I'm instructing, you know, that could just be introducing someone to Nordic skiing and having them have a good experience and then kind of want to continue on with doing that. I find that really rewarding. And then with coaching, it's even more so because I can see kids who, um, you can tell if a kid is really interested in Nordic skiing and in getting better. And I, I just love working um, with a kid who's like first starting to realize that because it's just, it's so cool to see them um, really develop that interest and then start to work hard because it pays off, you know, and you can really go places um, in sport mm. for sure. So yeah, it's yeah. been fun. And I, I, I really like working with Gordo. So he was one of my first coaches and someone that had a huge impact on me 
and with Park City Ski and Snowboard, I actually don't coach directly with him because he's with the comp program, kind of the older juniors, but I do sometimes get the opportunity to work with him and then with Ruff Patterson as well. So it's been fun. Yeah, for sure. So uh, as you know, Liz, I've been the Toko Glove designer since there's been Toko Gloves. I'm curious what your favorite Toko Glove is, what favorite model is and why? Yeah, um, I have two answers for this because I have a favorite glove model from when I was training and racing, and that was the Thermo Race Glove. Uh-huh. And there, I just think it's a really good like in-between glove because I don't like the thinner gloves for racing because my hands get cold, but those are something that like feels fast and is a little thinner on your poles, but you're not going to be distracted by your hands being cold and now um I'm all about the toasty mittens that's like pretty much the only glove that I wear um, between coaching and ski instructing because you're doing more standing around like you have to keep your hands warm and I found that that's really the warmest glove so I'm a huge fan of those toasty thermal mittens yeah the toasty thermo yeah so when it comes to gloves for me it's a no-brainer if anyone would say, I'm going to get one pair of gloves, what should I get? It'd be the thermal race. It's the obvious as far as I'm concerned. If you have extremely cold hands then you shouldn't be buying gloves perhaps, but you know, for your average person. And I've asked, I guess, uh, 35 people this question this year. And I think two of them have said thermal race. It's always been thermal plus or profi pretty much, which blows me away because the one that did was Caitlin Gregg, and she's like, "Well, it's a no-brainer, of course." And Brian Gregg, of course, thermal race, uh, but um, it, for some reason, it hasn't gotten the attention that it clearly deserves. That model because it's they're fantastic gloves. So it's I'm glad to hear you say yeah, that. I like those. I'm a fan. Yeah. So I'm curious, what classes you're taking, with whom, and with what goal in mind? Sure. So when I retired from ski racing, um, moved back to Park City and then um, have been working for the year, it was always with the goal in mind that I would spend this year um, kind of working and playing in the mountains and then I would be um, applying to a graduate program. So right now I'm taking just a psychology 101 class through Salt Lake Community College um, because they offer online courses and it fits in with my schedule of everything else that I'm doing. So that's a prereq class for my master's program that I'm applying to. So it's a two-year master's in genetic counseling and I'm hoping to start that in the fall of 2021 and then do a, a two-year program. <laughs> okay. So you got to explain what genetic counseling is. I heard the term for the first time just a second ago. And to me, like if you've got genes, they're not to be changed. How can you counsel genetic counseling? You got to explain what it means to me, please. Okay. Yeah, no worries. I get that question a lot. So um, genetic counselors are fairly, it's like a fairly recent field and something that's taken off recently, but you're working with people who either have a genetic condition or disease, or they um, are at risk for it because of their family history. And so um, you can now get your genome sequenced or get parts of your genome sequenced with with technology that's come out fairly recently. 
Um, and then you have that information to kind of inform medical decisions. So say you have a family and they have um, a history of a certain disease. Um, members of that family can either assess their risk of passing that on to future children or they can get their genome sequenced. And it's essentially making like more informed healthcare decisions based off of genetic information. So it's not necessarily counseling like a social worker counselor, like someone who's predispositioned, genetically predispositioned to uh, depression, which it would be that, but even more be someone genetically predisposed to uh, cancer or, so it's more of the helping them make informed decisions as compared to counsel counseling them. Is that right? Right. Um, and I think the field in general tries to incorporate both aspects because we know that there can be um, a pretty big, big impact when you receive news about some mm. sort of disease. Um, and so I, the, the goal of the field is to make it not just providing the information, okay, this is X, Y, Z, and this is what it means, but making sure that people truly understand, um, you know, genetics is a complicated field. And so breaking it down into, into terms that everyone can understand and then just making sure that they have um, support throughout the process, so. That sounds like it'd be a really rewarding career. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years and perhaps where? Um, so, Terrifying question, I know. <laughs> I know. It's hard to <laughs> look that far in the future, but I am hoping to be working. So I want to work as a, a clinical genetic counselor. So with a hospital, I'm meeting with patients, but I also like have always had this background in outdoor sports and adventure. And so I am really hoping that I can get a job um, within a system, a hospital system or a clinic that is kind of in the West, in the mountains. Um, so I have that balance of work and then play. Essentially. Yeah, for sure. Um, with that in mind, you're a Utah girl. I know you spend a lot of time out east, but um, you spend your free time in the mountains and in the desert. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I would, I would say so. Yeah. For those not familiar with the unique recreational opportunities that Utah provides, not just in the Park City area, but all of Utah, can you please try to give a snapshot of this outdoor utopia that we live in and love? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I am biased because I'm from here, but I love Utah. Um, we are in the Wasatch Mountain Range, so there's kind of endless exploration in terms of climbing peaks um, and ridgelines, trails, all of that sort of thing, just within the Park City, um, the Cottonwood Canyons, and then the Uinta area. So... I think that if anyone is really into mountain biking or trail running, it's an awesome place to do all that sort of stuff with, with really easy access. And then um, the desert is, I mean, you can drive two and a half hours and be in the San Rafael Swell. So you can get to the desert pretty easily. And that's just a totally different landscape, just a couple hours away where you have 
Red Rock, you have slot canyons. Um, there's kind of also endless exploration there. You have mountain biking down in Moab. So I like all of it. And I think that um, that's one of the things about Utah that really drew me back here. When, when people who are somewhat familiar with Utah hear mountains, they just think of the Wasatch. Mm -hmm. But there are, I think it's 15 or something mountain ranges in Utah and the Wasatch is one of them and the Uintas is one of them. Can you, and, and Park City is located more or less on the, what they call the Wasatch back. So, but at the foot of the Wasatch Mountains on the backside, yeah. between the Wasatch, I'm sorry? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> between the Wasatch and the Uintas, can you briefly describe the difference between the Wasatch and the Uintas in, for, in terms of infrastructure, recreational opportunities, the feeling when you're out there, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So um, the Wasatch Range backs straight up to the Salt Lake Valley. And so you can easily access Big and Little Cottonwood within 20 minutes from Salt Lake, which is as far as Utah goes, it's like our major metro area. So I would say the Wasatch Front has gotten pretty popular recently. Um, and it's, it's a little more jagged, you'll get more elevation gain. Um, so there's really good hiking, running, all that sort of stuff, but it also tends to be a little more popular. And then the Uinas on the other side, there's like just a couple of state roads and highways that run through there. And so it's, it's also popular, there's a lot of people out there, but you can get more remote. So if you wanna go for like, a five-day backpacking trip in the Uinas, you can really get back into the mountains and it's going to be more like um, mountain lakes and a place where you can camp and not see anybody else and not see any like roads or cities from there. And, and the Wasatch is full of trails, like just completely full of trails, infrastructure, amazing you know hiking and cycle mountain bike trails roads mm -hmm. for road biking you know it's kind of a playground in that respect whereas the uintas it's most of it is a wilderness area which means no nothing with wheels much less roads um mm -hmm. and you need to earn your peaks much more in general in the uintas than you do in the wasatch um Definitely. you did king's peak fairly recently can you give an example how far was that from the trailhead to the peak and back so um, I had a crazy idea with another um, Nordic skier who lives in town to try and run King, King's Peak in a day. And I think it was 25 miles out and back. So we were doing um, yeah, 12 and a half miles to get to the top of King's Peak. And it's just like, there isn't um, really easy access to the mountains in the UNS. So we had to drive three hours and then you go in the start road and then obviously the trail is a, is a really long approach. Um, so you definitely, yeah, it's more earned. Most people out there were doing a two to three day backpacking trip, but my friend and I decided that we wanted to just do it in one day, which really proves if you ever want to do some like kind of outlandish adventure, the best person is a, a Nordic skier <laughs> for sure. Because they're able, but they're also crazy. They don't know. Yeah, they're, they're, Nordic skiers know no limits. Unhinged, but very fit. <laughs> yeah. So another thing I think is unique and spectacular about Utah, I would say it's springtime, but you're talking spring and fall. But 
in the springtime, you can ski and you can ride your bike in warm sun. Even sometimes, oftentimes, if, even if you don't go south, but if you do go south, for example, I've skied up in Boulder Mountain above um, Torrey, where the Capitol Reef is. That's one thing I like to do in the spring is I go down to Capitol Reef and I canyoneer during the day. But in the early morning, I go up on, on Boulder Mountain right next to the road and you can cross ski. Oh, cool. cross ski in the morning and then you go out in the desert in the afternoon and it's baking hot and sand and red rock. And it's just the, the combination is amazing. I'm yeah. sure some kind of adventures like that, huh? I'm gonna have to get some intel on the on the Boulder Mountain crest skiing because I've only been up there once on like backcountry gear and it was one of the more like type three adventures that I've ever had. So I'm gonna have to ask you like what time what time of year you go and all of that. But I I like that that aspect of okay we're gonna ski and mountain bike just multi sport all in one day. Yeah, but the cool thing too is in the afternoon when you're doing your other sport it's hot mm -hmm. and it might be 90 degrees. But yeah. you were seeing that morning just up the street, you know, yeah, that Route 12 goes up to like uh, 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, mm -hmm. something like that. And uh, there's really easy access to good crusting in the spring. Well, cool. Um, anything else you want to say? Um, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered it. This has been a delightful conversation and I, I've really enjoyed catching up with you as well as hearing all your thoughts about learning how to teach skiers into these different um, demographic, you know, different types of skiers, which is quite interesting to me. Um, we don't live that far apart, but I'm not visiting with anyone these days, you know, because of the pandemic, but I hope to hope to see you more regularly uh, on the trails and around in the near future. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks again for doing this. Appreciate it. No problem. Nice to talk to you, Ian. You too.